0: like to introduce myself first of all um, my name is luke meller i'm the marketing director for pantonium and uh, i'd like to thank everybody for attending uh, especially our, our panelists who i know are very busy uh, even though we're all locked down <laughs> um, and, and the, the topic that we are are going to be discussing today i think is very relevant for the current moment um, especially with everything that's going on in in the political sphere because today we're talking about public policy of public transit funding. Um, specifically, we're trying to answer a question that one of our panelists had, uh, uh, had brought up during our last webinar. Um, um, Maria Fa- uh, Frost asked, uh, asked our, our panel uh, from that last webinar from last month uh, a very big question that I don't think we were able to address during that conversations. And uh, the question was simply, how can policymakers incentivize public transit to be innovative, um, especially in in this moment where um, traditional sources of revenue um, have dried up for public transit. I think they're facing a massive crisis in funding over the next 12 to 24 months uh, because the riders have disappeared because of COVID and uh, and we're going to be waiting a long time before they come back. And now legislatures across the world uh, at all levels of government are trying to develop new funding programs uh, to keep transit afloat. And a lot of this is gonna be triage, just trying to fill the gaps in budget. Um, but there is a question of, can we do funding differently, especially now at this moment where things are in such a, you know, things have been disrupted so greatly. Um, and, and that's a challenging question. How can we do, do funding differently? Uh, it's, not, it's not my expertise. And that's why we are so blessed today to have an extremely experienced, uh, and knowledgeable panel on, these, on this subject to tackle this, this difficult question. So I'm just going to quickly introduce our, our panelists um, and, then, and then we can get started with the, the, the meat of this, uh, this uh, webinar. So first of all, uh, uh, Professor Eric J. Miller, uh, who has a PhD from MIT um, and he's been a faculty member at the Department of Civil and Mineral Engineering at the University of Toronto since 1983. And he's currently the director of the University of Toronto Transportation Research Institute, uh, who are co-sponsors of this this, uh, event today. Um, His research interests include travel demand modeling, integrated system modeling, and sustainable transportation planning. And he's a recent uh, recipient of uh, the 2018 uh, International Association for Travel Behavior Research Lifetime Achievement Award and the 2020 UFT Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering Safwat Zaki Research Leader Award. Um, and next, uh, representing kind of the American side of the conversation is Mariah Frost, who was born in Russia, family immigrated to the United States in 1993 and she grew up in Washington State, um, where she graduated at the University of Washington with a degree in political science and also completed courses in accounting and business ad administration at St. Martins University. And she spent 10 years working in the private sector as a staff member um, and as a staff member uh, at the US House of Representatives and in the Washington State Senate. And she's lived in both Eastern and Western Washington and believes strongly in the freedom of mobility for all Washingtonians. And she's also on the board of directors for the Eastside Transportation Association, member of a Jim MACLAS. Uh, uh, research Committee and member of the Washington State Autonomous Vehicle Work Group Subcommittee. Um, also a member of the Women of Washington Civic Group and is a widely recognized expert in the state uh, transportation policy. Uh, and finally, um, we have Professor Drew Fagan, who's a professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy um, at the University of Toronto where he teaches a graduate degree program. And Professor Fagan is a senior advisor at McMillan Vantage Policy Group, a national public affairs firm affiliated with the law firm McMillan. And as a public policy advisor, his clients have included departments and agencies and, um, and boards of all three levels of government, uh, as well as indigenous organizations and international associations and public interest startups. He's also the co-director or co-project director of the Ontario 360 Initiative and is active in other think tanks and university institutes, including the Public Policy Forum. And he's also spent 12 years in leadership positions uh, with with Ontario. He was the Deputy Minister of Infrastructure um, and he was also the Deputy Minister of of Tourism and Culture and Sport. Uh, He's also uh, joined the Ontario Public Service uh, and from Ottawa, where he was the Assistant Deputy Minister for Strategic Policy and Planning at the Department of Foreign Affairs. And before his public service, he worked at the Globe and Mail, which is my favorite Canadian newspaper, um, including the uh, the Parliamentary Bureau Chief, editorial page editor, foreign editor, and associate editor of the Report on Business. Um, and And... Finally, uh, moderating uh, this discussion will be Pantonium's very own uh, Jeremy Eves, our, our head of transit sales. And just a bit of housekeeping before we get started. Uh, we're gonna start this session with uh, all three of our panelists, kind of giving a, a introductory statement. And then uh, we'll go into a discussion on a few questions that we've discussed beforehand. And then finally, we'll have a QA and a for the audience, which I'm, I'm particularly interested in. And if you do have a question that comes up during this, uh, this webinar, please, uh, you, you can you can put it into the Q&A section and you can also vote for the questions that you want most answered. Um, so anytime you have a question, just type it in there. You can also ant, uh, put it into the chat. Uh, but with that, I think I'll invite our panelists just to begin some introductory statements on this, on this topic, uh, just to set the stage. And I, I think we'll go in the order of introduction. So we'll start with Eric Miller and then go to, to uh, um, Maria and then to Drew, Drew finally. Uh, if that sounds right, I think uh, I'll, I'll give the floor over to our panelists. Unless uh, Jeremy, do you have any, want to make any opening remarks to yourself? Okay, yeah, excellent.
1: Okay, great. Well, thanks Luke. So I guess I'm I'm oh. uh, the lead off hitter here. Um, so I think this is a, a very interesting topic and very timely, uh, I, I guess, I would like to start by just re-emphasizing the importance of public transit to cities, particularly big cities, the larger the city, I think the more important public transit as a, a part of the overall transportation solution is. And um, I, I, I think it, it's it's not a, a nice to have, it's a must have. And uh, given the density, um, uh, of, of, of large particularly large cities and the the magnitude of flows uh we i you know i think it's unimaginable that that cities uh, as they exist and as they're going to currently continue to exist, could exist without a strong, healthy public transit system. Um, and so I think the discussion is always about uh, the, the relative role of public transit versus other other modes, particularly the private automobile historically, uh, and how, how best to deliver that service, um, that makes best use of, of funds. Um, I think uh, I, I think uh, you know the funding of public transit is uh, is also a continuing issue. I think there's very good reasons why operating some some level of operating subsidies makes sense, and I think are inevitable for public transit. Uh, going back way back, when to the 50s, 60s, um, uh, subsidies both in Canada and the U.S. and around, most mostly around the world started that time because it was recognized that without without subsidies of public transit it it would fail it would disappear in most most cities and i think was recognized at the time that that would be catastrophic and that um uh, and, and, and so we needed to step in, and I think that still holds. I think there's good reasons why um, uh, they don't necessarily always pay for themselves out of the fare box, um, particularly the, given the way we've built our cities that are very, very uh, low density. Uh, but so the but so then the debate really is: well, how much was subsidy? How effective can it be? How should we, you know, how should we get the best bang for the buck and deliver the best service to our customers? Um, I think we we clearly, I mean, it's tr- it's become trite to to observe that we are in a period of disruption, uh, and uh, for all sorts of reasons. And so again, I think this discussion is is very germane because um, things are changing. We we won't be going back to where we were even before COVID, um, the pandemic. Uh, we were we were experiencing huge disruption in the in the uh, transportation system, being brought on largely by technology, both in terms of the uh, you, you know. The IT-based platforms and and the new service concepts that we see emerging almost daily, um, based on 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 the uh, you know the information technology, the machine learning, the the uh, the computing capabilities that we have these days. Uh, many of the ideas we see floating around in terms of demand response of transit and on demand service. Many of these things have actually been around forever, but we. In the past we often didn't have the technology to really make them efficient and effective. And so I think in, in, in many respects the big question is how can we make best use of these new technological capabilities, these new service concepts to complement, extend, uh, improve the delivery of public transit. I think we need to be looking for win-win situations uh, in which we make use of Conventional transit, shall we call it, in it, where it is best suited, and make use of these new technologies uh, to complement, and where they're they're best suited. Where how can we exploit the strengths of all the arrows in our quiver to, to try to, um, try to improve services. Um, and, uh, and and so I I think I'll stop there, and I, I welcome the discussion because I think we have lots of lots of uh, interesting questions to address, and, and, and lots of points of view to bring to the table. So. I'll, I'll pa- pass it along to uh, uh, to uh, Maria. I guess is the next next speaker.
2: Thanks, Eric, um, and and thank you all for inviting me into this panel. It's really a privilege to be here with both Drew and and Eric, and to be able to interact with the kind of audience that that we have. So, one of the issues that I have been researching and learning more about are ways for transit to use the disruption of COVID as an opportunity to reinvent how they've traditionally provided service and compete with mobility services that have been using this technology for nearly a decade, as Eric pointed out. With large transit agencies like Sound Transit in Seattle operating at 80% below baseline ridership, and that was just as of October 4th, um, before recent lockdowns. Um, and then, with agencies nationally facing serious budget challenges, it seems like a good time to reevaluate and pivot to finding cost effective and tailored ways to provide mobility to those riders who depend on transit for their daily commute. So, one of the questions that I've been asking and trying to answer, and part of why I'm so excited to be here with all of you today is whether the structure of federal aid during the pandemic promotes business-as-usual operations or whether it has the right incentives built in to promote innovative thinking around ways for us to move forward in this post-COVID economy. So should federal aid only be directed toward operating budgets so agencies can focus on maintenance and preservation of what they have rather than capital expansion similar to current priorities around highways and what is now a very uncertain future should that funding be structured as a loan a percent of which of you know a percentage of which can be forgiven if agencies meet certain metrics or goals around ridership or service innovation what are the incentives and resources that transit agencies need in order to pilot new ideas like on demand macro transit and is this a good time to know, reform transit board governance to increase accountability to the public as agencies work to navigate all of these challenges. These are some of the questions I've been tackling. I think despite the difficulty um, of this season that we're in and the fiscal and policy problems we're trying to solve, I do feel very optimistic because I believe that transit agencies have the talent and ability to innovate and use technology to reduce costs to the public while preserving and improving needed service. So, I'm very grateful to be a part of this conversation and look forward to hearing and learning from our panelists and audience.
3: Right, thank you, Maria, and uh, and thank you, Eric, and uh, for your comments. And and Luke, Jeremy, thanks for inviting. Uh, Thanks for inviting us and me and and nice to be here. Um, Let me put this in a, uh, and I I love the opening comments. Um, It's they're right on point in a larger context, both in terms of funding, because fundamentally we're talking about how government can incentivize things. So let's start with where we're at, um, long-term, short-term. And as Luke said, I was the deputy minister of infrastructure, head of the bureaucracy, not a political actor for those of you from the States. Uh, for a number of years um, and do a fair bit of work in this area, actually teach public policy. So let me use a couple of Ontario government numbers to start. Uh, Ontario would be the fifth or sixth biggest um, subnational jurisdiction in North America. About only about four or five states are bigger, about the size of of Pennsylvania. And um, provinces are much bigger than states in terms of their operations. So the infrastructure budget over the next ten years in Ontario is about 142 billion dollars. Um, new Ontario budget last month, and of that about 46% actually is going to transit. It is by far the biggest line item um, in that. It's about $66 billion planned to be spent by the Ontario government over the next 10 years. We think of provincial governments as being kind of dominated by healthcare spending. Um, and it's around, right around 45% transit funding in on the capital side of the budget is the equivalent of sort of healthcare funding on the operational, it was not like that 10 years ago, to begin with about transportation was the largest line item a decade ago when I started as Deputy Minister of Infrastructure, around the same amount, about 44%, but it was split equally. Um, now it's with transportation, roads and bridges, highways, much bigger, You know, it's a majority of the funding, but transit itself is what all transportation was getting as a share of the provincial infrastructure budget a decade ago. That sounds great, given as Eric pointed out, the priority of transit um, in, um, you know, in in big urban areas like Toronto, big cities across North America and in smaller towns as well, um, or smaller cities, um, but we don't prioritize the spending right. And that's where I think we should go in terms of um, encouraging processes that prioritize um, those dollars, because they don't set as far as you might hope they would go. So we prioritize new builds over maintenance and repair. And I would just point to a study last week or in the last few days by the FAO, the Financial Accountability Officer of Ontario, the equivalent of an Auditor General, who said precisely that the, the, the quality, the upkeep, the state of repair of our transit assets are not what they should be. And let's be fair, politicians like uh, ribbon cutting. So there's a bias in that way. There's a bias between good politics and good policy. There's a big difference between building for an election cycle and building for a generation. And it's hard to get away from those incentives in a political system. So you put the politics in the right place to make sure that happens. We also often build the wrong projects. Um, We do do cost benefit analysis, increasing not increasingly in Ontario and and across uh, jurisdictions. It doesn't get the attention it deserves. Um, And it doesn't have the impact on the political process that it probably should because of challenges of transparency um, and other biases, if you like. And we often build the right projects the wrong way, um, which is to say we've got a couple of examples in Toronto of big projects in which probably one is going overground that maybe should be underground and one that's going to go underground that probably should be overground. And there's a whole backstory to that that people in the GTHA, the Greater Toronto Area, know pretty well. And we lack incentives for innovation, which is really Uh, the question on the table. In terms of rapid response funds, some of these things have been done in the pandemic era. Surface, small-scale innovation, unsolicited proposals to encourage ideas um, to bubble up. We do all that in a complex, in Canada, three-order of government system, where the federal government is taking a growing role, happily, with regard to transit and infrastructure more broadly, but it really hasn't um, made those dollars, given those dollars weight in terms of policy, if not direction, then encouragement to the degree they might. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see if um, uh, the federal government, as it continues to increase funding, does more of that. We also have challenges in terms of coordination. Um, Greater Toronto area now 6 million people, uh, about 16 constituent governments of which Toronto itself is by far the biggest, we're not well coordinated at the regional level and the best example of that is transit, we can look to some American examples with regard to that to do that better and there's conversations going on about that, and we don't have good data to make good decisions. Um, you know, so we don't have a hub for data that we could encourage training with regard to best practices. There is no centralization of thinking with regard to um, the means of prioritizing and operating well. I just close by saying that um, you know there's been a lot of conversation lately about whether the pandemic and the collapse of transit is um, something that should be a cause for us to completely rethink how we're done. I know Eric was quoted in a newspaper article the other day that we were both talking about offline, that this may be, I don't think these were your words, Eric, but the pause that refreshes, we need to rethink, but we have to continue and we can use this um, to our advantage towards more multimodal means of transportation thinking a little bit more about the last mile active transportation more decentralized in the way people get around the region and place-based in the sense that we build transit much more conscious of other aspects of 15 minute 20 minute neighborhoods like housing uh community hubs and all that sort of thing so there's i think a lot on the table to be thinking about regardless of the order of government with regard to doing things better.
4: Thanks Drew I, I, uh, and, and, and all, I think that those are great points. And it sounds like everyone's kind of in a similar mindset right now. And you know, I'm, not a, I'm not a policy wonk. I, I haven't been in transit all my life, right? We've, we've Pantone even ventured into transit you know, about two and a half years ago <clears throat> and we've been learning along the way. So it's interesting to get these perspectives. And the one thing that I, I wanted to ask about was, you know, how, how much of policy today was informed by policy decisions that were made a decade, two decades? Three decades ago like has it been just continuous add-on of additional layers of the same policies going forward or have has there been any sort of disruption like we've seen right now that may have changed the way that uh, policy was looked upon in transit say 15 or 20 years
1: uh well maybe i'll kick off uh, i guess my somewhat jaded view is it's like groundhog's day we we've been having the same same day, over and over again for decades. In some sense, in terms of policy, most of, most of the big infrastructure investment decisions, uh, options that we're talking about today, some of which we're building, have been around almost forever. And and one of the problems I think we've really had in this region is is really policy gridlock, in that we we've been locked into thinking about the same way, thinking the same way, thinking about the same projects, not trying to think outside the box in terms of, first of all, are these the right projects, as D- Drew was talking about, and uh, would they be delivered in the right way? Um, and then and, uh, you know, there actually hasn't been, in my view, re- nearly enough evidence-based and you know, benefit-cost, project evaluation of some of these things in a non sort of way. Um, so I think we've we've really been locked into uh, a, a very conventional way of thinking. I think that has changed very very recently. We're starting to see you know express uh, express bus lanes and so forth being at least talked about. We here in Toronto we have the King Street pilot project, which was a big success in terms of freeing up a street for streetcars. Um, but uh, we move very very slowly. So I think the city of Toronto uh, is actually you know has been freeing itself up a bit, I think, in terms of how it's thinking. I'm not sure at provincial level that we've been seeing uh, that same sort of flexibility yet. Um,
4: what about south of the border? How, how are things progressing um, in, in the south? I mean, I saw, you know, it seemed like the last, say four to five years, there were some interesting concepts that are being floated around and people were being open to those types of changes. Um, Now, with this pandemic and ridership drops, I mean, is now the right time to really consider disruption for transit?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's been surprising for me um, is seeing how CARES Act funding has largely, I mean, and it's understandable why emergency funding would be spent to, you know, prop up operations. I think that's important. Um, But there is also CARES Act funding that's being used to fund the kind of capital expansion that was happening before, um, before the pandemic. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but at least in Washington State, you know, as we consider whether or not we go back to continuing what was being done before COVID, we really need to first ask the question of whether it was a good idea in the first place. (laughs) And so, you know, I... I have not seen as much innovation as I would like to see from transit agencies in Washington state. Um, but again, 2020 has been, I mean, it's felt very slow on a day by day basis, but it has gone by fast. And I think transit agencies are kind of still reeling from from that change. So I'm really, I'm, I, I'm trying to be optimistic as we move forward into 2021 and 22, as we expect, you know, Finances to be at their most dire, I believe, between the years twenty one and twenty three, and then set to to look back up in twenty twenty four. But so far, I haven't seen anything quite as interesting as what I've been seeing with what you guys are doing in in Ontario.
4: Drew, that? Drew, it the, the, it kind of brings up the idea to me, like the um, chicken and egg, like is. Was transit policy responsible for the lack of innovation or or supposed innovation in public transit, or was that there wasn't a, there wasn't anything really innovative being developed for public transit, so policy kind of followed that line? You know, so what what is the what needs to happen to support innovation innovative approaches in in public transit? And I and I can open that up to everybody, but Drew, you're you're next in line.
3: So. Yeah, no, and I, I I think you should, and I think the answer is both. Um, you know, if there's there's a part of government that is kind of a, an ocean liner, it's it's infrastructure, right? Um, classically in government, if you look at statistically at how much of government reprioritizes, I mean broadly, um, relatively little reprioritizes on a year to year basis across the system and there have been studies of this with regard to infrastructure and you think of a transit project um you know eric and i live each, near each other there's a line that's Uh, that's been in the planning stages, Eric, five years. It'll be finished by 2030 if we're lucky. Um, You know, you can imagine, biggest project we've undertaken in decades. We do have a substantial amount of building underway. But as I was saying, I'm not sure it's prioritized right. And there haven't been the incentives to engage in the kind of, you know, in some terminology, microtransit, um, you know, taking advantage of the, you know, the sort of onslaught of data that we're, you know, we're now seeing. So, you know, part of it is getting outside of government, knowing the government is going to look after, at its best, the base, right, in ensuring that classic transportation um, you know, bus line uh, bus lanes, bus lines, um, subways, LRTs gets built. We haven't even done that in the Greater Toronto area. We don't have a stellar record over the last 25 or 30 years or 50 years with regard to that. And but what I am seeing, especially with regard to the ability to um, use data privately, we haven't used it enough publicly um, to um, encourage smaller operations, Uh, people's ability to sort of get around Um, the big behemoth of the classic transportation services is growing and that may be one area. There are other uh, you know I'm I'm big on unsolicited proposals and I know some cities in the states I look at Los Angeles maybe not in transit particularly but generally with regard to procurement and infrastructure Ontario um, which is one of the biggest procurement agencies in North America and one of the best known for three P's um, has started to think deeply about unsolicited proposals and being open to new ideas as encouragement across the system, um, and frankly, not just with regard to transportation. And that's one way um, that, that the system can get ideas that bubble up instead of top down. Can,
2: can I you, add can to I what? You, oh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to pick up on a couple of things Drew said, just talking about this line that he mentioned uh, that is being built. Uh, there is a map, I think it's dated 1910. That basically shows that transit line. So the idea has been around for a fair while, and maybe we're finally building it. Uh, and as Drew says, probably badly. Um, uh, I, I think innovation is tough in government. And my impression, as an outsider, is tough in government in general. I mean, transit agencies—it's mm-hmm. hard for them to innovate because they're up to their, you know, they're up to their whatever in the swamp with the alligators every day, just getting the service out, and they're on. Un- arguably in many cases underfunded. So it's really hard for them to step out of the mire and, 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 and think broadly. And I, to a certain extent, my my experience with planning departments, both municipally and provincially, is to a certain extent the same thing. They they're locked into a certain worldview. They have a certain mandate from their political masters, and it's often difficult for them to step out. So I think getting innovation going within government in general can can be a challenge. So, uh, so I do think, you know, for example, there is a role for the private sector to be trying to push that envelope. I also really like the unsolicited proposal type mm-hmm. of thing. I mean, and again, I, certainly at least here, there's often not an openness to the debate and to ideas. Uh, they don't want you coming in the door, I, it has been my experience occasionally at least uh, with, with new ideas, they pat you on the head and say no, we have, we have it under control. Just as one example, about 20 years ago now, there was a private sector consortium here that was very keen on building a light rail transit network in the city of Toronto. Um, I'm biased. I did the modeling work for it. I thought it was a pretty good idea. Um, it went nowhere. Uh, it was seen as a threat by the TTC. Uh, it was. Uh, it, it had no political traction because there was no political lobby group for it. Um, so I think that was an example where it was an unsolicited proposal that made a heck of a lot of sense, and nobody, you know, maybe you didn't want those guys building it, but. Even take the idea and you know do something with the idea, and it wasn't picked up. Maybe maybe we're better off now. And the last thing I would just say is I, I think coming back to the disruption business uh, theme of this, I think one of the things we've really been learning here is the importance of our surface transit system as opposed to the, all our discussion is about the big big ticket subway in, you know investments and the subways and so forth. But what we really learned is is and some of us knew it all along, is the heart of the system are those buses out there just get, getting people to work. And and, uh, and and so if nothing else comes out of this, can, somehow, or other, either with conventional buses or new technology, can we do a better job of delivering, uh, getting the people to work who really need to get to work? And
2: right now we're doing a bad job on that. I just want to tack on to what Drew and Eric have both pointed out, you know, Drew, We, in Washington State, we have P3s, but they are limited, so private investment has been very, very underutilized as a result of that. And, you know, so, for example, we allow P3s by statute, but the law has provisions that effectively prevent them from forming. Um, We also require that debt be issued by the state treasurer, which eliminates financial incentives for private investment. And then we also prohibit unsolicited proposals and require a very lengthy and inefficient approval and oversight process. Um, But I would say that public-private partnerships are definitely a very good tool for policymakers to promote. Um, for transit to have in their toolbox, as far as funding and delivering and maintaining transit facilities and service, while also making sure that the P3 is structured in a way that prioritizes the agency's operating and customer service goals. I would also add that you know, transit agencies should be encouraged and supported to contract and customize service where it, where it makes sense to do so. It doesn't make sense everywhere. Um, I think different regions are definitely going to have different types of service needs, whether that be rail or bus or a micro or macro kind of service. But in every case, I think the goal should be not to operate a certain number of buses, but to provide a certain level of mobility and access to employment. I think that's really, really key And agencies really need to be supported both politically and financially by policymakers, by elected officials, by their transit boards to deliver on on that goal. (laughs) And I don't know if that's happening in every case, um, but if there are local grants with constraints that make it difficult to try out new pilots and programs that would deliver on that goal, then policymakers, I think, have a responsibility right now to, to loosen that to loosen those constraints. Um, so that would be my, my addition to your comments.
4: Thanks for, thanks for that, that, that very well thought out and, and uh, information packed answer. There's so much to talk about, <laughs> but um, one, one idea that came to mind or one kind of similar circumstances, um, I, I volunteer at St. Uh, at Mike's Hospital um, on, for patient uh, centered care and how to adopt that across the healthcare industry. And it, and it all comes down to the education side. So they're actually going back to, you know, educational curriculums to try and change the way that uh, healthcare workers interact with patients. And I'm wondering, you know, has the um, curriculum for, uh, for education in this space, apologize for the background noise. Um, Has the uh, education for um, transit planning and that type of thing has that evolved? Have, you know, um, Drew, are you, you're, you're you're involved in? Well, maybe both of you are involved, Eric and, and Drew. Has has education changed for planners in the last fifteen years? Yeah, maybe I can take that on, uh, Eric.
3: You know, well, probably both of you know it. Um, yes, and we've changed. Um, You know, the incentives with regard to urban planning to a sizable extent, Um, you know, we put into place around um, what's known as the Greater Golden Horseshoe, which is even, you know, it's it's about um, 10 million people now, um, Toronto writ large, Um, you know, incentives to limit sprawl, um, to build up um, urban nodes, as we call them, and to better integrate, uh, among other things, transportation with, um, um, you know, with housing and other aspects, but we haven't done it nearly enough. And other cities do it better. And this is something that has been, you know particularly of the moment in the context of the pandemic. You you know started seeing comments about the 15 minute city in Paris it started and it's growing universally. And that's fundamental to our transit planning. So as I saying off the top, as we think about it, um, and in terms of incentives, and this gets to where the federal government, I think, can play a role with regard to um, the context of climate and in the context of encouraging, greater equity in the wake of the pandemic. And that means ensuring that when we're giving out transit dollars or transportation dollars um, broadly, um, we're encouraging the proper um, zoning at the municipal level and the proper um, incentives towards proper equity considerations in all their aspects as part of that process, and the city of Toronto was conscious of this. Other cities across the region, across the country, are contact are, are conscious of this. And the trick for the federal government is going to be, because this is, I think, where they're going to go, um, is um, to ensure that they're not trying to get too micro with regard to prescriptions. Not knowing the the on-the-ground circumstances of individual cities, which all vary hugely, so you know that's a long way of saying yes, but not enough. But I can see that moving remarkably quickly in the wake of uh, of the pandemic.
1: So uh, I, you know, I teach in a civil engineering department. So obviously, a lot of our curriculum, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, is pretty technically oriented, which. No apologies for that. I mean, I think it's important that people understand how systems actually work and how you actually build and design and operate them. But I think we do try to instill in our students a a fairly broad view. I mean, we we try to frame everything from a sustainability point of view and a multimodal point of view and recognizing that technology is only part of the issue that there is a very broad policy and political context, but also economic and social within which the technologies that maybe we're designing uh, fit. Um, So, and I think our students are actually quite motivated from that point of view. Uh, An amazing number of students coming into civil engineering are doing so because they think it might be a way to make the world better. Uh, You know, uh, they want to build better cities. And we actually even have a masters of engineering specialization in city engineering and management where we're trying to, not just for transportation but uh, across infrastructure, in city urban infrastructure to try to give our students a much broader view of of the governance situation, politics, economics and so forth. Um, So I think we're trying. I think there's always more you can do. I think particularly uh, I'm not sure our students are as well prepared as they could be but I'm not sure how to do it in terms of walking into that institutional bureaucratic politically infused environment and actually trying to affect change within that as, as a you know a lonely a lowly uh, junior planner or junior engineer to begin with. So I, I kind of see our students kind of being despite all their uh, uh, enthusiasm eventually kind of being co-opted into this big, bureaucratic (laughs) decision-making process. So I think, I think there is, there is change coming, but uh, it's, uh, uh, and and how much more we could be doing, I'm not sure, but it's, it's, it's always a continuing discussion, I think.
4: You talk about institutionalization and, and uh, it's hard to, to turn that big of a ship um, and it takes a long time, but I've seen things happen in the last uh, eight months due to COVID that have you know, transit agencies have made very quick decisions with, with the support of the democracy to make it better. Right. So, um, what tools can we, can policymakers, you know, use to keep this moving, to keep this innovation coming? Because, you know, ultimately transit, I believe is, is meant for, you know, equitable access to social environmental, you know, economic, uh, benefits. How, what, what can policy do to kind of incentivize agencies to, to, to prioritize that and make you, uh,
3: um who wants to take that? Maria, are you uh up or should I uh take that? And I, I'm happy Maria, I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, I can I can start. I mean, we talked a little bit about that when we talked about public private partnerships and policymakers supporting those and um supporting contracting out, um, obviously with certain provisions in place, penalties and rewards for, um, you know, good and bad (laughs) outcomes. I do want to comment on the kind of the general goals of, you know, enhanced social, environmental, economic outcomes. In a lot of ways, I think some of these goals are are too broad. Um, I think a better outcome is really to focus on transportation regardless of mode that maximizes the number of jobs that people can access in a certain period of time, which is very important to people in economically disadvantaged areas who work multiple jobs and irregular shifts for whom that extra hour or two to be at home or to be able to get to their next job is a really big deal. And so you have to prioritize minimizing travel times in these metropolitan and more dispersed regions. And telework has certainly helped with some of that, but not everybody has that option. So um, I want to comment on on that first. Um, In addition to, you know, P3s, contracting is now a good time to talk about the tool of federal funding (laughs) Um, because I've been kind of itching to, to address that, you know. I I do have some concerns that continued infusions of federal money during COVID without the right incentives or spending parameters may may not um, incentivize agencies to, to look at new ways of operating and providing service. I said some of that in my introduction. I am very curious if current emergency relief funding is or could be structured in a way that allows agencies to create offices or positions that explore the potential of technology to improve services with, you know, the current fiscal and public health constraints in mind, or to try out new micro or macro transit pilots. And I think those partnerships with the private sector could certainly help fund that as well. Um, One idea that I've been thinking about, you know, both during, for both during and beyond COVID um, is, could be for Congress to, change the outcome that they want to see from federal transportation spending to the mobility of users. So rather than the population densities or transit vehicle revenue miles or other factors that we see in federal um, formula grants, a measure of that mobility outcome would be transit trips and transit passenger miles measured by or verified by fare box recovery or user fees. So the funds would be distributed in part um, based on the amount of fares that transit agencies collect and that I don't think that should cause the agency to increase fares to you know on affordable rates that people can't or don't want to pay but it should incentivize the agency to focus on providing the best possible service to existing and potential new transit riders in more cost-effective ways and you know orienting service where possible around that customer demand and around those user fees can certainly help achieve that as it did in Belleville. And then I also want to add that the Federal Transit Administration in the United States has prioritized innovation for 2020 competitive grant programs. So this is separate from emergency relief funding or federal formula grants. And they've spent over $34 million through something called the Integrated Mobility Innovation and Accelerating Innovative Mobility Programs which basically support projects for, you know, contactless payment options, transit automation, other mobility partnerships. and But within the integrated mobility innovation program, research is being done now on new service options and technologies that can improve access and mobility to people while promoting more efficient operations. That is a priority for the FTA. So I think this program is a great option for transit agencies to explore, though I would like to see, um, you know, if there are any rewards or penalties built in for success or failure, so that you know an agency has to follow through on what they've proposed, you know, for the grant. So these are just a few ideas that I've come across on the on the funding end that you know maybe feasible, maybe not, but um, but I think are are promising and should be at least explored.
0: And, uh, just, uh, I think we can, we have about 10 minutes left and we have a few questions from the audience. Um, so I, th- I think we have one, and this is a broad one from, from James. Um, but it was, it was the top rated one so far and it's, should we have a national transit strategy? And I'm not sure if this, I think the U S might be already ahead of Canada on this one, but, uh, I think I'll kick it to the, uh, to the panelists that just discussed this one and, and, yeah, I know it's a broad one, so we, we might Can not I, be able um, to cover this whole thing uh, completely. Can I take
3: a crack at that real fast? And that is Canada's doesn't have an urban strategy. Um, so much urban policy, uh, policy, given the structure of the constitution is at the provincial level. Um, I'm not sure if we need a national transit strategy. Um, what we do need is a national transit hub for um, you know, lack of a better word, in which all the transit agencies get together, compare best practices, prioritize data, prioritize abilities with regard to maintenance, repair, construction and everything else. And the federal government as it will be playing a larger role with regard to um, infrastructure generally should be thinking about just as you were saying Maria putting the right incentives in the place with regard to funding processes that encourage innovation, encourage green, and encourage the kind of things coming out of the pandemic that are, that are widely accepted, including, by the way, in the context of innovation, some sort of kind of challenge fund, safe restart fund, um, you know, rapid response fund that will encourage smaller scale projects. You know, I agree with Eric. We we think the mega projects—it's like the Soviet Union in the nineteen fifties. Sometimes, I mean, let's encourage the kind of surface transportation, private public that um, that we really need, and get the incentives in the right place.
1: I mean, very briefly, I, I just agree with everything Drew's saying. I I think we have a tendency always to start from the top down and say, "Oh, let's have this national strategy." That's we'll spend the rest of our lives debating that. I'm a much bigger fan of Ground Up, finding ways to incent the provinces and the cities to to work together, uh, collaborate. I mean, we have a couple of national organizations, uh, the CUDA, the Canadian Urban Transit Association, which is supposed to be doing, does some of these things in terms of data and best practice, all transit agencies are members of that. Maybe one could look at how they could be better financed and, and their role expanded. We also have the Transportation Association of Canada, which tends to be a little roads oriented, but it's still a national forum, particularly for the province, provincial ministries of transportation to get together. Um, so I think that's another forum that could be used to nudge <laughs> more collaboration across the provinces. Um,
4: I mean tr- transit is a political hot topic, right? I mean, you know, and it, it just as the as you get closer to an election year and election cycle, it gets to be hotter and hotter and it's almost untouchable. <clears throat> but um like like we go back to today where we see a lot of the disruption happening because of a, national, a global pandemic, there is where there's a will there's a way, right? I mean, do people have to um you know, make this discussion more well known? I mean, it's not like We're just having this discussion for the first time. I mean, I think that people have been talking about transit reform or transit uh, efficiency improvement for many, probably over a decade, uh, as far as I can tell. I mean, what, what kind of things can people do, you know, today to help, you know, help be a part of the solution, right?
2: I think part of that, as we talked about a little bit earlier, is is education and, and, and a lot of that is to be repetitive communication. So one of the things that I'm really looking forward to working on in 2021 is talking with transit agencies that have piloted new programs like those, you know, at Pantonium. Um, and telling those stories and, and sharing those case studies of real successes. Um, not just talking about innovation or contracting out in theory, but really bringing it down to a ground level um, and sharing very practical examples from real transit agencies um, and, and ideas that have worked. And I think that's, I, I think that's a big part of the you know, education, <laughs> dilemma request, um, is, is to get those stories out. Um, otherwise it just feels very distant or very pie in the sky. Um, and I think people, I think transit agencies need to be encouraged and you know, that these are, that these are feasible solutions and it may even include, um, You know, those other transit agencies that have tried these new programs communicating with transit agencies that haven't or that have hesitations or concerns and certainly there are forums (laughs) in which we can do that, especially now with everything being virtual that can't be that difficult to set up.
1: I think we have to find ways to reduce, first of all, risks for transit agencies or governments to be taking on pilot. Studies, case studies, uh, looking, at, you know, thinking outside, outside the box, um, so that you know you're not penalized if it fails. Uh, Second of all, I do think there is a need for money. I mean, I I, I take everything Maria says (laughs) about you know, and and Drew too. I mean, we can throw bushels of money at things and not solve anything, but but targeted money uh, in the right spot to make it possible to do these case studies in the first place, or to incentivize. I mean, I think thinking about how you do incentivize public agencies to innovate. I mean, again, it's it's ancient history, but there was a time when we had a different funding formula here in Ontario for transit, and each transit agency was mandated to to recover a certain percentage of operating costs from the fare box. And it was a very rational policy because it uh, was, I think, in that it was uh, staggered based on population. A smaller town wasn't expected to recover as much uh, of its operating revenue, uh, operating costs as a large city because you know it was a bit of a social service and and you know so for example the TTC being the biggest operator had to recover two thirds of all operating costs so they had they had a subsidy of thirty three percent and so they had to meet that that was a target but you know so it, it's pretty pretty efficient operation some years they would actually have a surplus you know they would recover seventy percent of their operating costs. Um, I would argue they should have been allowed to take that 3% and invest it back into, you know, a couple more buses or improving a maintenance yard, the money would be taken away from them. Uh, And it goes back into general revenue. So, you know, so that was an example. There was no incentive to try to be more efficient. As long as you hit your target, that's what you did. So, you know, everybody works to the rules. So I think we have to think about how can we make the rules different uh, and maybe a few less rules uh, that actually allow you to innovate. I mean, we are so wrapped up in many, so many respects that even if you wanted to, uh, it may be difficult to do something differently from the way we're doing it because there are so many, you know, constraints on on things from one perspective or another.
2: And
3: there's a heavy political overlay generally
1: yes <laughs> you know heavy political overlay
3: especially in this region but not exclusively so obviously that that plays on you know it's like a in some in many cases a dark cloud over the process mm-hmm.
0: and i think uh, we have time for another question and this this i think you we were kind of discussing around this but this is a question from william and it's should public funding be delivered by outcome and he says say ridership not output say kilometers of service or this was my operation expense. And should assistance be provided to municipal, municipalities by a shadow fare, uh, you know, a top up per passenger rather than straight budgetary transfers, and perhaps a bonus, and this I think covers a little bit of what Eric was mentioning, you know, say um, if you hit a certain target and net increase in ridership, you get a bonus of cash rather than getting your funding taken away if, you, if you're too efficient. Uh, there any any thoughts on on this kind of outcome versus
1: output? Well, my top of the head reaction is I think I, I would be concerned that that may introduce more uncertainty into planning. I mean, one of our big problems here, both on operating cap, but particularly capital, is because we have such strange processes. There's very little certainty around which you could plan. Um, and so I, I would be concerned if this led to, well, I don't know what my budget's going to be next year. And that could actually encourage you to be more conservative, if anything. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's some evidence that, you, you, you know, uh, on capital projects, at least in some cases, you know, the pressure to be on budget and on time causes causes the agency to pad the budget and pad the the, the, the schedule so that even if everybody screws up and spends way more, they're on budget. So I think you have, you have to be very careful about how you actually design these things as so you don't get an unintended consequence. Uh, but re- re- rewards, um, uh, you know, I think carrots sometimes work better than sticks. So thinking about how you might reward efficiencies and, and hence encourage it would be interesting.
3: Real fast, um, you know, over the last 20, 25 years in public policy theory, we've talked about the new public management, which is about measuring outcomes. Classically, you view you know, the bureaucracy or government is getting strength by measuring inputs, how many people work for you, how much money flows through your division. If you're sophisticated, you look at outputs. If you're really sophisticated, you put it outcomes. The challenge, of course, is one person's positive outcome is not another's, and the private sector, you know, the outcome is measured in a line. In the public sector, it's often looks more like a Picasso painting, and in a um, in a sector like transit, um, in which again the political overlay and the the minuteness of the interest um, from the public broadly and the interest and the, and the pressure they put on um, is so strong, it's 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 hard to have measures that are going to be widely accepted so that you can really uh, accept outcomes as being universal you know universally accepted and um but that doesn't mean in principle um that it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense
4: you're looking at uh, the most recent development uh that, that uh, package that was pushed through congress in the us um it looks like uh airlines actually got more funding than transit did uh, for that one bill, um, interested to hear about any thoughts on that.
1: They probably have better lobbyists.
4: Is, is is airline travel public transit?
1: Uh, well, they yes, in the sense that they're common carrier. I mean, in in the inner city, we often interstate travel. We often talk about buses and rail and airlines as common carriers rather than as transit, but. They're, they're a company an operation that carries a bunch of people that don't know each other in a vehicle, right? So <laughs> there's
3: and,
4: some relationship
1: and, to what we think of as urban public transit there,
4: and obviously getting public funding as well. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Luke, other questions?
0: I think we we might have time just to. Oh, well, we're right up against the time. Um, I know There's a there's an interesting one about. Uh, about Maglev projects, but we might have to save that for another, another uh, webinar. Um, I think, I think we can close it off here. I know you know people probably uh, have scheduled only an hour, but I would just like to take this time to, to thank the panelists uh, for taking the time, and also everybody attending. And I just uh, just to remind everybody, uh, we'll get a recording of this. We'll send it out, so if you missed it, uh, you you should have one on hand and. If you do have any questions for, for us at Pantonium or for the panelists, uh, just let me know. And uh, you probably have my email and I can connect you with the panelists if you have any further follow-up questions. And yeah, thank you. Thank you everybody, Have a stay safe out there. And uh, and hopefully we'll, we, we'll be returning with the webinars uh, next year, uh, so, so keep an eye out for those. Uh, yeah, and thank you everybody again for attending. Uh, have a good day.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you, right. thank you everybody, bye-bye.